0: back with Dr. Jane Hughes, a member of the Board of Directors of the Association of American Physicians and Surgeons. Dr. Hughes is an ophthalmologist and eye surgeon in private practice, uh, seeing patients daily in her office. Uh, Dr. Hughes, you have been a guest on Freedom Forum Radio in the past, and it is my honor and privilege to welcome you back.
1: Well, Dr. Dan, it's my honor and privilege to be back. It's great to talk with you again.
0: Dr. Hughes, first of all, please tell us about the Association of American Physicians and Surgeons. What is it and what is their mission?
1: The American Association of Physicians and Surgeons is one of the few national organizations of private practice doctors and academics that they're uh, desirous of joining. It's open to all physicians and The basic philosophy is that the prime purpose of medicine is the relationship between the physician and the patient, and the practice of medicine puts the patient first above any other consideration. So, it really is a group of freedom-fighting physicians uh, trying to maintain the primacy of the doctor-patient relationship.
0: You know, the Hippocratic Oath means something to me, and I know it means something to you. That is that philosophy that our job is to take care of patients from from conception and birth until natural death, and to do no harm to them, and to try our best to make sure they remain healthy, and to do so in an honest and, and open fashion.
1: And I think that this has uh, been under attack uh, by corporate medicine, and actually by governmental medicine, and this really does kind of segue into uh, the COVID-19 because I think AAPS was kind of launched into the limelight because they were one of the early organizations that uh, promoted the use of hydroxychloroquine in the early treatment of COVID-19 to mitigate the serious disease and life-threatening aspects of the disease. So,
0: that's a really good way to start of it, off a discussion. Um hydroxychloroquine has been around for years. Uh, Certainly, you and I as ophthalmologists know that there is a potential but uh, infrequently occurring side effect in the eye. So we do see a lot of patients who are on hydroxychloroquine. um, And here it comes out as a potential treatment for a novel virus. Uh, What is your opinion on that?
1: Well, my opinion is, first of all, the treatment consists of uh, two tablets twice a day for two days and then one tablet for four days more. And the entire treatment costs $20 compared to other uh, potential treatments. Uh, We do know from now from some excellent uh, clinical observational uh, studies that hydroxychloroquine given early in the COVID-19 disease can mitigate serious and life-threatening disease by about 62 to 63 uh, percent. As you mentioned, the safety profile is so excellent that it's safe for pregnant women and nursing women, which very few drugs are. So what would anyone have to lose with a $20 treatment? Because the pills are about a dollar apiece. And it's interesting that you note the retinal problems. Uh, retinal problems are extremely rare, and they're related to long-term use. In my practice, I've seen one patient with Plaquenil, which is hydroxychloroquine toxicity, and she had been on it for 35 years. And in terms of the heart uh, problem, people who have a, a rare syndrome called the long QT syndrome may be at risk for cardiac problems with it, but it's extremely rare even there. So there really is no argument against using it other than (laughs) you-know-who mentioned that he was on it, and from that point forward, we saw an explosion of negative publicity for it.
0: I do want to uh, just speak to hydroxychloroquine again because uh, you know that back in in the very beginning, we were required to do... Uh, testing prior to the start of hydroxychloroquine, and then every six months we were required to do uh, testing to make sure there was nothing going on in the patient's retina. Well, after some years of that, it became obvious that the risk to the eye was so low that the current guidelines are you don't have to do any testing for the first two years of being on hydroxychloroquine, and after that, once a year. So, that's, that's the kind of thing that, that really it makes me feel good about truth in medicine, is that when you find out something by reasonable experimentation, and then you can relax some standards when you know something is really not as dangerous. My patients on hydroxychloroquine who have arthritis, they absolutely love it. It's an incredible drug for arthritis.
1: It is an incredible drug, and when we saw the FDA actually change their classification of the drug to a dangerous drug, which I think has since been dropped, uh, we got a, a glimpse of how politicized this COVID-19 virus had become.
0: You know, what you are really aware of, as I am, that there have been many, let's say, misstatements about COVID-19, about all the aspects of this infection. Uh, To you, what are some of the truths and the myths that have come out over the last three, four months in dealing with uh, this viral infection?
1: Well, first of all, I think we could have taken a close look at Italy uh, when uh, New York City became so infected, and we could have readily identified who was vulnerable Uh, and uh, taken a a good look at uh, the demographics of the people who did get the serious disease, uh, which we did not do. And instead, we quarantined an entire nation. And I don't believe in our entire history we've quarantined healthy people to protect the vulnerable. And as we all know, the vulnerable were doubly exposed by taking those who were actually ill with COVID and putting them in very close uh, living circumstances such as nursing homes. So, you know, when you take a look at the mortality of uh, COVID-19, most of it takes place in a few states on the East Coast where this was a practice, putting them into nursing home and assisted living. I think from the offset, uh, Dr. Fauci and Dr. Monnier, who we've never heard from again, made outrageous predictions that were based on false uh, models, and the mainstream media took off running and has sensationalized, unfortunately, the COVID-19 virus to the point where, as you mentioned earlier, uh, we we really became uh, a nation uh, hysterical and panicked with fear over this uh, novel virus.
0: Well, you mentioned a couple of things that, that really are important, like models. That has become... Uh, One of the tools that science, supposed science, and unfortunately pseudoscience and fake science now use to try to make predictions on which they can base uh, decisions uh, that can be wrong. For instance, when you're doing models, uh, what they do is they look for the absolute worst that could happen and the absolute best that most reasonable people would try to find a middle course. But if making these models is really a, a, something that you do for a political ade- agenda, it, it serves your purposes to look at the absolute worst things that could happen and then come out and say, well, here is what's going to happen or here is what we believe is going to happen. And as a result, uh, fear, panic, hysteria in the population occur. And from that point on, it's impossible to do anything that's truly rational.
1: And it, it, it's been a true human tragedy. We had two. We had two aspects to the virus. We had the actual illness, which we all take seriously, and then we had the absolute destruction of our economy. We asked people to commit financial suicide by closing their businesses, when on the other hand, we all could see that Walmart and Home Depot and liquor stores and gun stores could be open, but you could not go to church. You were stripped of your right to peaceable assembly. Uh, There were egregious things that were implemented by mayors and health departments and governors that, when we take a look, were contradictions in and of themselves. How about
0: the concept of herd immunity? Uh, isn't that a valid medical concept?
1: I, I believe it is a valid medical concept. But if we if we go back uh, to when this all started, the first two weeks in New York City, I think there was an appropriate shutdown because we were caught flat-footed. We could have learned a lot from Italy, which we did not until later. The demographics of who was vulnerable. As we know, the average age of people who succumbed was 79, and all but 2% had pre-existing. We knew what the pre-existing were if we wanted to look, and we could have given America valid information of what we knew when and kept them updated with legitimate, calm, valid information. So uh, the first two weeks, I really uh, don't blame the shutdown, but after that, everything became politicized. Like you took a state like Wyoming, children don't get COVID. Uh, and if they do get it, let's take 20 and under. It's a mild disease, and the odds of them succumbing to it are 20 times less than influenza or flu. Uh, but yet, all over the country, we shut down schools, And even if you're 50 or under, the odds of your dying of COVID are less than dying in a house fire. If you take a look at statistics, well, those are reassuring. We of course mourn anyone who succumbs to anything, really. But life is risky, and there are ways to mitigate the risk. And different people have different, you know, uh, risk uh, aversions, if you will. But to take a country and and for an unlimited period of time. Uh, shut it down where we have quarantined the healthy at the same time to protect the vulnerable uh, makes absolutely no sense.
0: You're absolutely right, of course, uh, Dr. Jane Hughes. And again, it's a a privilege and an honor to have you back again. I, I enjoy talking with you, and your opinions are really valuable. As a practicing physician, you see people in an office setting. You get to talk to them. Interact with them, and uh, that gives you that in touch information that really means so much.
1: You know, well, thank you... you very much, Dr. Dan. I appreciate that, and you know as well as I know that every physician in America had virology, epidemiology, and we have a certain baseline understanding of infectious disease.
0: Well, You've mentioned something that obviously is on everyone's, everyone's thoughts now, and probably one of the most important things that we can discuss is how do we reopen our schools so that our children can resume their education in a, in a normal school environment in some kind of an effective and safe manner. What are your, what are your, what are your thoughts on that, your guidelines, and just try to help give us a blueprint on what you feel is a reasonable way well, I... of achieving that?
1: I think uh, that it's on everyone's mind as it should be. And, you know, of course, we have to ask ourselves, is school an essential service? And I think the overwhelming answer is, of course. And then we have to ask ourselves, how do we open schools uh, so that they're safe for students and teachers? And I think, first of all, everyone needs to understand that there was a fabulous article in the Wall Street Journal on June 6th. And it was entitled, America's Grand Experiment with Remote Learning Fails. So I'm going to put in my pitch right here and now, and it's the same thing the American Academy of Pediatrics has said. We must open the schools full-time, in person. So how how are we going to accomplish this? Well, we don't have to start just from scratch. We have some excellent data, especially coming out of Denmark. Um, There's one from a study from Dresden, Germany, from Finland, but let's just focus on the study from Denmark, and people can Google that. They opened their schools on April 10th with some added... The uh, desks were put, like, three feet apart and uh, stepped up hygiene in terms of uh, washing hands and uh, uh, public health measures that were reasonable, and they kept meticulous records on the children, the teachers, and the community. And what they found up to about three weeks ago was there was no uptick in children cases, there was no uptick in teacher cases, and there was no uptick in community cases. And as a matter of fact, the cases have continued to drop. And of course, across the board, the death rates have continued to drop. So the bottom line is, there is no public health reason why we should not open our schools in person full-time. Our children already missed a third of last year. my One of my grandsons, was a junior, was taking physics and calculus. He missed a third of the year. He's not going to get that back unless he takes it in summer school. And little children have lost about 50% of their math skills and about 30% of their reading skills, and these aren't my statistics. So there should be a strong push. So what are we dealing with? What is holding us back? It's fear. Yeah, when I play the hoochie-coochie man,
0: I get joy in everything, 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 everything gonna be all right this morning. Part of the politicization of this entire Our process, of course, is the teachers' unions, And uh, that's where a lot of the organized pushback is coming from. Um, I've read several articles and seen some news, uh, news accounts of the fact that in some areas, teachers' unions are kind of holding the counties hostage and saying, unless you do X, Y, Z, that will keep me safe, uh, we're going to go on strike. Uh, That really is playing with the lives of children uh, in a way.
1: Well, I I think one of the most important things that we can sort of uh, get across to the American people as physicians is let's start with today. Let's not pretend we're stuck in April. Now we have excellent treatment early for people who exhibit symptoms of COVID-19. We also now know how to manage people that small little percentage who get very serious disease, life-threatening disease in a much better way than we did in April or May even. And when you take a look at the what's going on now, our mortality rate has fallen, 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 fallen now that we're doing more massive testing and also treating people better. So now is the time to seriously talk about reconstructing our society because mass in and of themselves alienate people from one another. And we could have a big debate on the pros and cons of masks, which I don't I really don't want to get into except to say that there are cons to the mask and one of them is deconstructing our feeling of connectivity uh, when we go to the grocery store or wherever. Uh, but now is the time we have got to start addressing, unwinding some of these tyrannical Restrictions that now there really is not a public health justification for.
0: That's really kind of the most important point that that we can emphasize in a general way is that once you take uh, medical decisions and turn them into political decisions, everybody suffers. Uh, The healthy as well as the ill always suffer when these decisions are, are not made between a patient and
1: a doctor. Well, I think also, too, uh, as we've been saying, information is the key. If you arm people with information, we have to have a baseline faith that the general population, if given valid information, will do the right thing. So really, this virus has pointed out two ways of looking at, at our country. One is most people will do the right thing when given the appropriate information. The other is, oh, people won't do the right thing, so the government has to do this, do it for them. That's the nanny state. The other is the personal responsibility state. People have to ask themselves, which sort of a country do they want to live in? Because we've had a taste of our rights being taken away under the guise of, quote, keeping us safe. And as we've seen... It hasn't kept, excuse me, uh, many people who still went on to get the COVID nineteen virus, quote safe. So what we've done has been a jumble of different actions. And as you and I both know, when epidemics hit, there's a characteristic curve. They increase the number of people who get it, and then as people recover, the number of cases drops off. And it can you can either extend the period of time or you can let it go through the population, which is what we usually do with flu.
0: And that's a a really good point, because this year there still have been more deaths from seasonal flu than there has from COVID. And when you look at some other infectious diseases, like HIV, for instance, there are far more deaths in the United States than there are uh, from COVID-19, and we haven't shut down the nation over that either. So this has become a political disease, and when that happens, uh, we all suffer from it. Dr. Jane Hughes, do you have any other suggestions or or information to give us about restoring normal life in our nation?
1: Well, as I said, I think it's time now to reconsider uh, uh, the various measures that have been taken and give people recommendations. Let them know that the three top risk factors are obesity, uncontrolled diabetes, and lung trouble, which includes smoking. And those people might want to be a little more cautious as we re-enter a, quote, normal society. Uh, And obviously, the vulnerable need to be protected. And if you're sick, you need to quarantine yourself until two days after symptoms, until you're totally symptom-free. And the rest of us, I think, with some very common sense added precautions. Give people space in a public space. It doesn't have to be six feet. We know three feet is adequate. Uh, Stay home if you're sick. Wash your hands. And uh, if you feel uh, better in a mask, wear a mask. But for those people who are healthy, we know they aren't shedding enough volume of virus, even if they check positive, to give someone else the disease. So, From that point forward, I think we could start to reconstruct society, but we've almost become mentally ill over this virus. Uh, We've become fixated, and we have to turn the corner and try to get back to normalcy.
0: Well, Dr. Jane Hughes, just so that you know, I call the situation COVID crazy, and (laughs) I have seen so many examples of of COVID crazy, uh, the stories that we could probably all tell are are kind of amazing. I mean it's as if some people believe that there's just this mess big cloud of virus hanging over us all and if we walk under the cloud it'll drop down upon us like a lightning bolt and infect us and potentially kill us and I think there's well, a lot of Well and that's walking really, really that sad because I feel very
1: uh uh sorry for the individuals who are living in fear because life isn't safe and we're surrounded by all sorts of bacteria and viruses and funguses. And you can't blame people who have been given erroneous information that changes daily and then sensationalized and 24-7 they're being pounded with it. Uh, you can't blame them. It's I, I, I have great empathy. Uh, so it's really our job as physicians with every person we interface with, to very calmly be reassuring that the epidemic is winding down, that we're going to do the right thing, that we're going to get back to normal, and then we need to start to do it?
0: Well, we definitely need to get back to normal. And one of the things that we're, of course, dealing with are governors in various states, and, of course, unfortunately, North Carolina is one of them, where the governor is uh, visions himself as a, as a petty tyrant and a dictator and has, in spite of all information, has gone ahead and uh, just made all kinds of restrictions and dictates, which make zero medical sense, and no one can seem to to get to them. One size does not fit all when it comes to cure. You know that as a physician. Uh, And yet, we here in rural North Carolina are being treated as if we live in Raleigh-Durham or Charlotte or Winston-Salem or Big City. Uh, like Asheville, for instance, and instead of allowing local governments to make decisions for their own people based on the situation. Uh, In our county, until until recently, we had about Mm -hmm. 40 cases. We have a county of 29,000 people. Uh, We had about 40 cases of uh, COVID. Only one had passed away, and everyone else had recovered. Uh, And yet we're being treated as if we live in downtown uh, Charlotte. Obviously, there's a lot more difficulties. So,
1: uh... well, in closing, I think it is important for us to learn from how this has been handled, and so we never do this again. And one of the things that needs to be done on every state level are limitations in these emergency prof- proclamations. There should be a time element to it, and uh, we need to ask ourselves why the CDC and NIH and some of the governmental agencies who are really their mission is to be prepared were totally unprepared for this. So again, like I said, this never happens again.
0: Dr. Jane Hughes, practicing ophthalmologist and eye surgeon, a member of the Board of Directors of the Association of, 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 of American Physicians and Surgeons. It's been a pleasure to have you on Freedom Forum
1: Radio. Thank you so much, Dr. Dan. It's been my pleasure.